How's it going, Mets fans? Thank you guys all so much for watching, listening, wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Believe in Queens pod, episode two. Yes, we are jumping up and rolling here. Myself, Wardy NYM. You guys know me. I'm Tyler Ward, but on YouTube, Wardy NYM, biggest Mets page on YouTube, not directly affiliated with the Mets or SNY. If you're watching this on YouTube, especially, my beloved co-host is, yes, Joe Sorrell. You can check him out with his national podcast regarding talking all things sports with all different sports type players great athletes out there great interviews a lot of fun stuff and in today's pod guys we have so much to deep dive on the latest that is the new york mets here because they just came off of a great series victory there against the miami marlins that we will be deep diving here shortly we'll be taking a look at the astros series coming up that starts tonight by the time you're listening or watching this wherever you get your podcast along with some updates on max scherzer other players as well that we will see potentially in this astros series and also some trade rumor discussion headline headline by yes Luis Castillo and wrapping things up with some all-star discussions that we first broke down in our previous pod a lot of break into I'm really excited and Joe how are you doing today my man Tyler I'm doing great bro always good to win a weekend series especially against a divisional rival and before we dive into that weekend series with the Miami Marlins I do want to remind everyone that this episode is brought to you by our friends over at Bet Online. Bet Online is the best place to go. You can get your Wimbledon odds there. You can get MLB odds there. The Stanley Cup Finals are over, folks. We've got two months uninterrupted of baseball and nothing else leading you into football season. And speaking of football season, you can place your NFL futures over at Bet Online. Check it out, betonline.ag. And when you use your promo code Believe, that's B L E A V, you can get your 50%. Welcome bonus. Head over to Bet Online and let the games begin. All right, let the games begin indeed, Joe. Like I said, we have plenty deep dive in today's discussion, folks. As many of you guys know me on YouTube watching this in the video format, please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Again, this will be a weekly Mets pod presented by the Believe Network that you will see basically after every single Mets series throughout the remainder of the season and beyond. And folks, just so you know, within a couple episodes, there's a very good chance that we're going to have our third co-host that you will see consistently, weekly. And yes, he is in fact a former New York Met. So you want to make sure you don't miss out on that announcement once it, once it is official. I'm really pumped up. I'm excited. But I'm even more excited about knowing that, yes, the Mets are back in the win column. 20 games up above 5 hundo entering this Astros series. But Joe, let's just break down. Let's get in the nitty gritty on what transpired here in this three-game set against the Miami Marlins. Yeah, so let's start with Friday night, man, because the Mets going into Friday night were at risk of, for the first time this season, losing three straight games. And I was starting to think that our show was a jinx. We started the show right before the Houston series, and then, <laughs> or rather right after the Houston series. And this team had, you know, never lost three in a row all year. Well, Taiwan Walker made sure that we still haven't lost three in a row. And he did so against arguably the best starting pitcher in the National League, Sandy Alcantara with the Marlins. I mean, for me, it's like you look at Friday's game and Taiwan Walker, we talked about the possibility of, you know, he was an all-star last year. Of course, tapered off, had a terrible second half. Can he potentially go two for two as a New York Met in terms of making the National League all-star team? And man, he, he looked every bit the part on Friday night. Taiwan Walker making a real case. You know, we know this team has all-stars. Alonzo, Lindor, McNeil, Diaz, Taiwan Walker. And we're going to get more into the all-star voting and the position player talk later on. That'll probably be the end of the show. But what he did Friday night against Alcantara, against a guy who's really making a bid to win the NL Cy Young this year, Walker outpitched him, plain and simple. I mean, he got that series started off on the right foot. Alcantara, of course, was the lone pitcher for Miami to beat us in that four-game set the weekend prior. Walker said, you're not going to beat us twice in a week, not on my watch. He was incredible. Lindor was incredible, had a home run, had that four RBI game. Uh, I mean, you know, this team after two, you know, two games against Houston at Houston last week where our starters put us in a big hole each game. And, you know, even though we showed some fight, we were ultimately weren't able to come back and win either of those games. It's like this team just never stops fighting. So Friday night's game to start that series, man, just it, it could not have started off on a better foot. Yeah, I love that we went into this game, right? That was your key game out of the three that we first discussed in our last pod, right? You know, when you match up against the GOAT and Sandy Alcantara this year, who's not just been one of the best pitchers again in the NL, but in all baseball, for the Mets to score a total of what? You saw five run runs on him in seven innings. That's absolutely massive. And for Taiwan Walker, no less, to continue in the positive direction, not just being one of the better pitchers now in the NL, but he looks like he might be the leading candidate for the Mets when it comes to being a potential all-star starter 
starter for them. Just like how he represented the Mets last year for Jacob DeGrom that did not show up. Now Ty might not even just make it, but make it deservingly as an actual pick right away. I mean, when you look at his numbers here for Tywin Walker, just an absolute thing of beauty. G- gave up eight hits, only three earned runs, two walks, five strikeouts. Again, wasn't the prettiest performance over six, but another quality start by him. Just exactly what you need for your, from your Mets stars, especially when you don't have the likes of Max Scherzer and, of course, Jacob DeGrom in this rotation. But not even that, just seeing the Mets, what they were able to do in this one against Alcantara, but the big brain decision-making. This is really where I really want to know your thoughts, Joe, and how you felt about the likes on Buck Walter and what he was able to do, not just in this game, but in this series overall, and really just making other managers look silly, not just for the Mets right now in their history, but throughout their history as an organization. I mean, have we ever had a guy like Buck Walter that's been able to step up the way that he has with some phenomenal decision-making that have been either making or breaking ball games? Not in our lifetimes. And, and and I'll say not in our lifetimes where we can remember watching the Mets. Because I'm 24. You're, you're what, 21, Tyler? I want, I keep talking. Just need to grab something quick. Keep going. Yeah. So when it comes to Showalter, I mean, you know, the Mets have had great managers, right? Gil Hodges, Yogi Berra, Davey Johnson, and then more recently, Bobby Valentine. But if, if you look at really the last 20 years, the Mets have had, even though Willie Randolph led us to some good records, the Mets have had no one like Buck Showalter when it comes to baseball IQ. I mean, you saw what he did Friday night, winning those two challenges. You saw it, or rather I saw it firsthand uh, when I went to the Mets-Dodgers game, game three of that four-game set out here at Dodger Stadium, when Dave Roberts tried pitching a position player down, what, four or five runs in the top of the ninth, and Showalter came out, and he was the only one. The umpires didn't even know the rule. Showalter knew the rule that unless you're down at least six, a position player can't pitch. So he continuously just outsmarts opposing managers, outsmarts the umpires. I mean, Buck Showalter is just as sharp and crisp as anyone. You know, we spoke about it last week on this show. And I mentioned Tony LaRussa, right, with the White Sox. And in comparing LaRussa and Showalter, you know, I said how LaRussa is one of those guys who the game has glaringly. I mean, you watch a White Sox game, you know, I've got MLB TV, so I'm watching every team constantly. And you hear the fire Tony chants every single home game over on the South side, right? Showalter's not as old as LaRusso. LaRusso's 78. Showalter's, I believe, 66. But this is a guy who, you know, a lot of people tried saying the game passed him by, and that couldn't be further from the truth. You saw it after Saturday's win. The guy's trying to rip off his windbreaker. I don't know why, 95 degrees in Miami. He's got that thing buttoned up to the point it looks like it's choking him. <laughs> but, you know, Escobar Lindor trying to rip it off him. He's laughing. It's like these guys, doesn't matter if, you know, you're from a different culture, background, age, generation, whatever. You know, he relates to these guys. They love him. He earns their respect the way he manages every single game. And, you know, what I thought, obviously, the the back-to-back challenges on Friday night was a beautiful thing. What I thought really separated Showalter from the Mickey Mouse managers the Mets have had in recent years, guys like Callaway, guys like Rojas, was how he handled Saturday's game. Now, Diaz pitched Friday night, got the save in that win over Alcantara, that, that win for Walker. Saturday, when the Mets were up 5-3 for the second straight game, they won those first two games 5-3, going into the ninth, in the Mickey Calloway era, in the Louis Rojas era, it would not have shocked me to hear the manager say after a blown save from, you know, some middle reliever, well, you know, Diaz pitched yesterday, we got to save him for tomorrow. What's different about Buck is that Buck doesn't worry about tomorrow. We worry about tomorrow when we get to tomorrow. Yes. Buck manages to win now. He knew Sunday. It was up in the air. Obviously, you know, Peterson's had some good starts, but doesn't go that deep into games. It could have been a bullpen game. Peterson ended up having a great start, even though the Mets lost. But Buck managed on Saturday to win Saturday. And by the way, Diaz looked better Saturday than he did Friday night. Hit 103 miles per hour, a new career high for him. Struck out the side. I mean, he was... You know, Friday night didn't have a single strikeout, which is very uncharacteristic for him. Got Gave up a couple hits, actually. I believe the Mets won. There was a guy on third base. But Saturday, Diaz looked incredible. The Mets guaranteed a series win, which was so important when Sunday's game happened the way it did. And that that's, to me, the beauty of Buck. Oh, I, I think you picture this beautifully, right? Because Buck, talking about in-game managing on the same day, that was huge for him. And especially going back to Friday, just knowing that awareness and something that was so important for me, at least how you emphasize Saturday's game, for me, not just Saturday, but going back to Friday was, again, how reliant and how focused that Buck has been with his staff around him. Now, in case you're not aware, one of the main Mets guys that they have to check video right away is a guy that was working for the MLB for a very long period of time, was hired early last year by the Mets, early in this organization, along with Steve Cohen and the new regime, right? So 
Buck has been glued in with this guy after every single somewhat controversial play. Even if it doesn't look like a controversy, he's working the phones right away and asking Sherlock, you know, should we review this? Should we go for the challenge? So I just love how in tune someone like Buck is because, again, if we look at the Mickey Cowboys of the world, the Louis Rojas's, and all these other previous uh, managers for the Mets. You don't see them nearly as locked in to the degree that Buck Showalter is from the first pitch of the game to the last. And that's just something that I've loved so much about him and how in tune he has been, even with him being a veteran over 20 years of managerial experience, right? If you talk about the Tony LaRusses of the world, yes, he has some more experience. And yes, LaRusa has done great things as a manager, but he's a has-been. He's been there. He's done that. Then you have other managers that are really in a class of their own. I do believe that Buck is just like very much so in a similar spot than a guy that he's going to be matching up with starting tonight by the time you're watching this. And yes, Justy Baker. These guys yep. have so many similarities. And when you look at other older managers in the league, yes, you can give props to Snicker and things of that nature. He's been a long time with the Braves his whole tenure, right? But outside of them, there really isn't many other veteran managers out there that are both in tune from the eye test, the gut feel, and also having that balance of the staff around him, knowing it's important to balance analytics, but not to an overwhelming degree. Just knowing yeah. that you don't want to step on too many toes and just keep things afloat. You know, when Dusty came in after the A.J. Hinch situation a couple of years ago, the Astros Gene scandal, that was just a beautiful move by them right away because you bring a guy that's established. It's not like he needs to do too much, and he has a credibility, and he can just continue to help an Astros team and a win-now stage still right in the prime of their careers for all their star players to continue continue to roll come playoff time. Now you bring the Mets who have this core group who built some more this past offseason, right? With some great acquisitions led by yes, Max Scherzer that we'll be talking about later in the pod. And then you have Buck come in and he just makes his team feel that much more comfortable. There's a sense of accountability and you can even just see that they have this loosey goosiness to them. But after they know that the job is set and done, not during the game when you have no clue how the result is going to be right and the Mets, they really savor these wins and they emphasize it around Buck. That's why they want to throw him around like he was a little kid. I just loved everything about those uh, after game celebrations there in the dugout. But yeah. point is, again, is that Buck, like Dusty, these guys are in classes of their own. And that's why I appreciate them that much more because it's not like the Mets have had this beautiful history of managers that have done a phenomenal job. It's been the farthest thing from the truth. Let's be honest here. So give credit where credit's due and Buck definitely deserves that. And not just looking at game one, that was emphasized from not just Buck's decisions, but Francisco Lindor leading the way with his offense. In game two that we saw, it was similar, but not with Lindor as much this time, but rather Pete Alonzo, right? Alonzo was a star in this game, having not one, but two absolute piss missiles to give the Mets then the lead that you saw there in the eight to come back. Everything's retired for a little bit. Another game, another strong start from Chris Bassett. Two straight starts against Miami where he gives up three earned in around six to seven innings. This time, seven innings pitch, six hits, three earned runs, five strikeouts. I will take that any every day of the week. I just want consistent quality starts for my rotation, and thankfully the Mets provide just that. But as you emphasized a couple minutes ago, David Pearson, a guy who who knows what kind of impact he's going to have on the Mets down the stretch here, he quite easily had arguably his best start, if not one of his best starts of his entire yeah. career there in the loss. That was by no means his fault, but rather an abysmal Mets offense that won one for 13 with runners in scoring position there in game three. Mm -hmm. So what's kind of your outlook on not just game three, but this overall series for the Mets as they, again, still won the series, which is most important two of three against these fish. Well, look, lot, lot to unpack there. And, and I agree, you know, I really love everything you just said because I, I, I agree with a ton of it. I mean, so starting with Dusty Baker, it's like you're, you were spot on in bringing up Dusty as the guy to compare Buck to as opposed to a Tony La Russa, right? I've been screaming for the better part of the last four years that the Mets should have hired Dusty when he was available, right? And I know that the vacancy, I don't believe ever lined up. I think the Mets had one more year of Callaway when Dusty was hired, but I would have cut that tie from the start and brought in Dusty. So he was the guy I wanted originally way more than Buck, to be completely honest. And this year, Buck was the guy I wanted. It all worked out. You know, maybe the reason that these guys are so sharp when a guy like Tony LaRussa isn't anymore is because LaRussa got his World Series rings, right? Yeah. He got him with Oakland. He got him with St. Louis. And so maybe he's very complacent, which you can't afford to be anymore, right? Dusty Baker, yeah. you know, everyone loves to knock Dusty and Buck because they haven't had the quote-unquote postseason success don't forget, Buck Showalter built those teams that Joe Torre won, what, three or four rings with? Yeah. I mean, Buck built those teams. Torre came in first year manager, won the 96 World Series. Buck assembled that team, right? So, so don't tell me Buck's had no postseason success. And then Dusty Baker's been to two World Series. 
unfortunately never got the job done once he got there. 0-2 with the Giants, lost to the Angels. Last year, of course, you know, I was rooting like hell for him to beat the Atlanta Braves in the World Series. But love your comparison there. Now, you bring up Sunday's game. And real quick, Saturday, something you mentioned about Alonzo. It, it was great. I was down in San Diego this weekend. And Saturday, I was with my dad. He's visiting from New York. Of course, he works for the Mets. And we stop in. We're on Pacific Beach. We stop in the Pacific Beach Ale House, the PBL House. Great sports bar, great beer, great setting. And we're watching the game. And Alonzo strikes out with the bases loaded. He's already hit his first home run at this point. Strikes out with the bases loaded. And my dad goes, ah, damn it. You know, where was that? You know, where, where was the home run with the bases juice, yeah. right? And I saw Alonzo snap that bat over his leg. Oh, like a twig. And I turned to my dad and I said, he's hitting another home run tonight. <laughs> An angry Pete is a scary Pete. You know, you don't yeah. want to get Alonzo in a pissed off mood because he, you know, instead of throwing a fit and being a brat about it, like a lot of guys from this younger generation can be, let's call it what it is. We're a part of that generation. But Absolutely. a lot of guys our age can have that prissy prima donna shit going on, right? Like Alonzo, he's not mad at anyone but himself. And yeah. he's going to take that out on the baseball's next at bat. And sure as shit, what did he do? He put us up with that home run, his second home run of the game, the next at bat. Then you look at Sunday's game, right? And Peterson, like you said, nail on the head, man. Best start of the year. You don't know what you're going to get, though, right? And that's why it was so important for Buck to manage Saturday to win because you don't know with Peterson going Sunday. You know he's probably going to pitch well, but he might go four and two thirds, and then it might be a bullpen game. And, you know, if you lose, you don't want to sit back going, great, we just lost two out of three because we didn't bring Diaz in the other day, right? Now, the way that game unfolded, you know, the final thing that I, I want to praise you on and that you were just dead right about is that the offense blew the game. And I'm very glad you didn't bring up Adovino because some people are mad right now, Tyler, that Adam Adovino really, after giving up that walk-off homer with two outs in the bottom of the ninth, shrugged it off. And I want to know your thoughts on this because to me, as a former pitcher and as someone who has been a starting pitcher, as someone who's been a middle reliever, as someone who's been a closer, I, you know, I've pitched in pretty much every facet of the game. It's like to see Adovino's reaction to giving up that two out walk off homer in the bottom of the ninth. I couldn't love his reaction anymore. As a pitcher, you need a short memory. I have no gripe. I have no issue with Adovino saying I'm not going to lose any sleep over it because he's been our second best reliever over the better part of the last six weeks. Only Edwin Diaz has been better and more reliable and more consistent out of our bullpen than Adovino. I believe before that home run, he had given up one earned in his last 20 innings of work. So the fact that Adovino, you know, look, he got two guys out early in the inning and then he made one bad pitch and he paid the price for it. It happens. We won the series still. Adovino is still hot as hell. One of the best relievers in baseball at the moment. I have no issue. In fact, I love that he shrugged off that loss because he's going to come back now pitching the way he was before that home run. I will even go a step further to say that Adovino didn't even throw a bad pitch. If you look at the replay on the pitch they threw, I believe the slider, that was more in on the hands, and the guy just absolutely pulled that bad boy. I mean, like, yeah. am I am I upset that Adam Adovino didn't have a playbook on a no-name Miami Marlin entering that situation? No, it's the farthest thing from the truth. If I'm am I going to push aside the fact that Adovino has only surrendered one earned run in his last 20 plus innings of work for the Mets? No, I'm going to emphasize that right now because it's important to acknowledge he's been in so many bigger spots than that situation that we saw there in which he gave up the walk-off bomb, unfortunately, in the Marlins. But, hey, these things happen. It's baseball. And this is what I love. Really what frustrates me about fans is we're so stuck at times in the short-term notion of, Whoever just blew the game, you know, that's like Edwin Diaz is a great example. Edwin yeah. is not just arguably the best closer in baseball, but he's truly one of the best relievers in all the game right now. But God forbid, if this guy has a blown save here or there, then by all means, he's the worst thing imaginable. Like, no, we need to focus on what they're doing in a larger body of work, especially in high leverage situations. Edwin has been that guy nine plus out of 10 times in 2022 and even in part 2021, right? So let's emphasize that. But Adovino, the guy who entered this year, who has had some of the nasty stuff in all baseball. If you know his arsenal, the biggest gripe with him is one, it's his walk rate. That's something that he struggled with entering the season. And two, high leverage. We know his status with not just the Red Sox against the Yankees in the playoffs last year, but when he was with the Yankees as well, that those are things that the Mets and Buck can help manage down the stretches here. But Adovino, I'm not, I'm by no means looking at this game and saying he's at fault for that. Again, 
What were the story in the Mets all of 2021, Joe? It was the story of not scoring one bit with runners in scoring position. That's how yesterday's loss felt for me personally as a fan. When you go one for 13, you have no one to blame but yourselves. Then with that lineup, James McCann, who's returned from injury, I love that he's back. I really do think that he's helped the likes of David Pearson right with the framing. Let's not forget McCann actually has been in the 90-plus percentile in framing this year, which has been a huge step up for him which he was one of the worst in baseball in 2021. I think that helped with Pearson, who, again, went seven strong, four hits, two earned runs, eight strikeouts, all swinging Ks, no less. Absolutely beautiful stuff from the young southpaw. But going back quick to the Mets' loss here, this was on the offense and the offense alone. And these games will happen. The Mets didn't look pretty this entire series offensively. They went two for nine in runners of scoring position in game two. Still got the win. That's great. But especially in the bottom half of this lineup, Without a Jeff McNeil still, who we thought would have returned in this series originally, did not. Hopefully, we get him back in this Astros series starting tonight at the time of you guys watching and listening to pod here. That was a factor for sure, you could tell. But, I mean, the Mets offense was just front-loaded. They were top-loaded. And when those guys, one through four, one through five, were not producing, you weren't going to get much other than that. So, while I don't agree with it, while that's something that I don't want to see, we still have to pinpoint what were the factors in the Mets' loss during the series finale. And it was nothing short of just the offense and the offense alone yeah absolutely man look anyone who wants out of to get up there in that post game presser and sulk and go oh man i blew it you, you don't know baseball right baseball is a game of failure it's a game where the best hitters are successful three out of ten times and the best pitchers give up a run every three innings right so for out to go out there and say what he said and essentially you know maybe you know trust me he cares right he's not happy but for him to to portray that he doesn't care it's exactly what I want from one of my most high leverage relievers. It's exactly the way Buck Showalter approaches the game. It's exactly the way he preaches. So Adovino, Showalter, look, if they're on the same page, I'm happy. I love what Adovino said. You mentioned the Strohs series and hoping that we get McNeil back. Let's dive into the Strohs series because McNeil, having him back is absolutely crucial, not just for this series, obviously for the whole season, but you want him back in a series like this because we get two more games up against the team who, you know, we very well might be facing again in October, November this season. And I want to see the Mets at full health with, you know, their best against the Astros best. Now, one area where we're not going to see best on best is in pitching right now. You know, nothing's definite. Obviously, we're recording this on Monday, so it's the off day. Series starts tomorrow or as you're listening today on Tuesday. Right now, the pitching matchups, as listed, are Frambert Valdez, Game 1, against Cookie Carrasco. Justin Verlander, Game 2, against Trevor Williams. little odd to me that Cookie and Trevor Williams seem to be flipped here. Williams got the start Game 1 last Tuesday against the Strohs, Cookie to follow. So Williams is essentially going to be going on a full seven days rest. That's insane. Cookie's going to be going on still an extra day of rest because of the two off days. Tyler, how are you feeling about this series? Because I'll be honest, you know, I was really hoping the Mets would actually, with all the off days, you know, two off days in between meetings with the Astros, I was really hoping they'd go cookie game one and Taiwan Walker game two. Because even though, you know, it doesn't matter in terms of National League standings or division standings, I still want to be able to run out our best, or at least with Taiwan Walker, our best available starting pitcher against this Strohs team and see how we fare. You know, it, it doesn't feel right. For me to see Trevor Williams, who, you know, will obviously not be a starter in the postseason for the Mets going up against Houston twice in a week. Yeah, I mean, do you know for certain at this juncture that's going to be Williams for game two? Because that's what was listed, you know, right before we started recording. I'll check that again right now. But that, the latest I was saw that was listed on, M on, on uh, MLB's app on ESPN. ESPN. OK, we'll see. I'm going to go with the notion as of now that Wednesday is a toss up. It's either going to be Williams or it's going to be Walker. I'm curious as to why it wouldn't be Taiwan Walker, because if you look, if you do the math, it's on a perfect five days rest because the Mets think they have this off. Yeah. Okay. So point is, is that this, I think, would benefit Walker, to be quite honest with you. Mm -hmm. I think it would benefit the Mets more. I mean, what do you rather have? Do you rather have Taiwan Walker here in game two of this two-game set or Williams when you have the Texas Rangers as your next series? I mean, if you're already going to stretch Williams to go past five days rest, why not do it even one day further, if need be, in that Rangers series? Again, and I don't even know how the alignment would be if that would make sense, but 
my initial reaction is I want Taiwan Walker pitching in this series. So if he's not, I'm a little bummed out about that. I got to be honest with you because Trevor Williams, who by no means has been a bad pitcher for the Mets this year. And again, we talked about in episode one of the pod. He's been a saving grace for this rotation, able to eat four five solid innings, keep the Mets within those games. And even though Williams wasn't a stud in his first outing against the Astros a couple days ago, he still kept the Mets in it. It wasn't just Trevor Williams giving up a couple runs early on. That was the complete X factor in the Mets losing that game. No, it was an an anemic offense that could not step up with bases juiced, less than two outs or no outs for that matter. And that ended up being their faltering in the end. So initially when I look at Cookie, he's going to be interesting in game one, right? He's eight and three on the year with a 4.42 ERA. However, he did give up those five earned and not even three innings against the Astros. He exited that game with lower back tightness. He's ready to go. He's okay. So the tightness didn't seem like it was a big deal, thankfully, that we talked about in our first pod. But I don't know what to expect from Cookie. I expect him to have a bounce back start 1,000%. But this is an Astros team that even though that, yes, they lost the series finale to the Yankees, they split that four-game set just a couple days ago. They did, however, have a strong series for the most part. They did were able to get a combined no-hitter, right, in Yankee Stadium. That's a big deal with these Yanks that are the powerhouse of all the MLB right now. So I know you'll expand on that in a second, but for the Mets to have Cookie out here, I think he's going to have a solid start. And all I hope for him personally is that he gives the Mets between five and six strong, giving up hopefully no more than three earned runs. If he can do that, the Mets are in this game, right? Then it'll be up to them on how they tackle uh, things with their own bullpen, if they can salvage things or not. And then Valdez, I got, I'm not going to lie. I am awfully concerned about him, not just because he's one of the better pitchers in all the AL this year, but his seven and three, one loss record, 2.90 year, right? But he is a Southpaw. We know things very well. The Mets against lefties, you know, the, the young, uh, what's his name in Castano and the series finale for the Marlins carved up the Mets, made them look silly. I mean, these things tend to happen. So especially when you get a more solidified lefty and Valdez, I have no clue how the Mets approach will be. Ideally, you would expect guys like J.D. Davis, Pete Alonso, and a lot of these other right-hand bats to thrive against a guy like Valdez, and I truly hope that they do. But something that we saw against Trevor Rogers, at least at home, a couple games ago, was that the Mets were unable to do that, especially with their bigger uh, power hitters on the right side. So it's going to be an interesting matchup. However, I don't think that's the end of the world. But game two concerns me because we have a 39-year-old Justin Verlander Two years removed from his Tommy John surgery. Normally, guys' careers are over at that point. But, again, Verlander is a bona fide Hall of Famer as soon as he retires for a reason. This guy's having literally one of his best career uh, seasons of his career. A 2.22 ERA currently. A 9-3-1 loss record. I mean, this guy, he's still pumping 95-plus on the VLO. Well, he's basically touching 40 at this point. And he just has the nasty off-speed stuff. He's going to be challenged for the Mets. There's no doubting. So, the least that I would want as a Mets fan is to see – Taiwan Walker out there who's been absolutely shoving this past month plus and for basically the majority of the season. Ty 6-2 and two with a just over three-year right. That's who I want in this game two matchup. Am I going to absolutely be upset if it's going to be Trevor Williams? You know, not to a complete degree, but I would personally, as you asked me originally, I would very much so prefer Walker because Trevor, he has a 3.86-year right, one and four win loss record on the year, and he wasn't terrible against Houston, but he wasn't the best either in Houston. Four innings, he gave up three earned runs. Again, kept the Mets in it, but I would like to see the Mets maybe have a little bit of a pitching duel going should Verlander be as advertised there in game two. I don't love the chances of that happening with Trevor Williams on the bump versus Walker. Yeah, I'm with you. So first, look, you mentioned the Strohs Yankees, and I got to throw this in here because I hate the Yankees almost as much as I love the Mets. (laughs) The Yankees tied an MLB record. Not an MLB record you want to tie. The most consecutive hitless innings from their lineup, 16 in a row, tied two other teams, the 81 Dodgers and the 73 Athletics. Tyler, I know you're a little younger than me. I'm going to test your history out here. What's the significance of the 73 Oakland A's? The 73 Oakland A's. Oh, I, I might, I mean, I might need a slight hint. I apologize. They beat the Mets in the World Series. Then. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. See, so, I, so don't, hopefully I don't. The Yankees focus, don't... I don't focus on the down years of the Mets. Okay, <laughs> I'm focused on the new. I'm focused. Hey, on hey we've, we've been to beyond. five World Series. You got to know those five. So yes, hopefully, absolutely. the 2022 Yankees don't have that in common with the 73 Oakland A's. Although, you know. Uh, that Yankees Mets Subway Series World Series over the next few months leading into October. It's something I'm sure we're going to talk about a lot, but 16 straight hitless innings. And, you know, going into that series, if someone said Houston's going to split with the Yankees, I would have signed up for that, right? Sounds great to me. This one's actually a little bittersweet because the Yankees did not lead this series for a single inning, Tyler. 
Both of the Yankees' wins were walk-off wins. Game one and game four of that series didn't lead for a single inning. So that kind of stinks that Houston, considering that they were either tied with the Yanks or ahead of them every inning in a four-game set, a little disappointing. They didn't win at least three in that one. But when you look at the pitching matchups, right? Now, look, just because it's on the ESPN app doesn't mean, you know, doesn't doesn't mean it's the word, right? Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't mean the guarantee. That- you, we, you might know by now after, you know, you started watching and listening to yeah. this because, again, we're on like, a would say, a day delay right now from recording this. So keep that in mind. Yeah. So, so looking at the way that these matchups are being portrayed right now, you know, let, let's let's combine this with our segue into Max Scherzer, right? Max Scherzer, last episode, we said he was supposed to start Sunday at Miami. Buck wanted one more rehab start. So today, while you're watching this, Tuesday night, he's going again for Binghamton. Now he's supposed to start Sunday against Texas for the yeah. Mets. So you look at the Mets weekend, right? Well, with no Scherzer, the way things went in Miami, it was Walker Friday, Bassett Saturday, Peterson Sunday. So Peterson, if Scherzer goes Sunday, is the odd man out. Honestly, Trevor Williams at this point, the more I think about it, should be out of the rotation right now. It should be Cookie on Tuesday. And you never know with Cookie's injury and his early departure from his last start, maybe you need Trevor for that Tuesday game with Cookie in a combined effort to save the rest of the bullpen. That's true. Should be, should be Walker Wednesday. That would be standard rest for him. Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. It's your standard four days rest. And then Bassett Friday, Peterson Saturday. And Scherzer returns Sunday. So it wouldn't shock me knowing Buck if that's the way things do unfold. Because to me, that's the only way it makes sense to do this, right? I mean, even, you know, even in doing that, Bassett still gets an extra day off, right? If he goes Friday, he's still working on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, five days rest, an extra day. Same for Peterson. So if you can get Walker on standard rest and Bassett and Peterson still on an extra day's rest, I mean, that's the way to approach this. Trevor Williams actually at this point, Tyler, should be out of the rotation. And I kind of figured that as I was talking to you, knowing that the Mets, again, have these off days right now. And Scherzer, if he does, in fact, return on Sunday, that's something that we will deep dive further in our second pod, which will be a third overall podcast. But that's coming out this week after the Astros series. So make sure you don't miss out on that one. And also, we'd just like to emphasize once further, yes, if you guys are watching YouTube, make sure to let us know your thoughts on the Mets and everything going on right there in the comments below. Of course, make sure to smash that like and subscribe on. Greatly appreciate it. Make sure to rate, review, subscribe wherever you get your podcast for Believe in Queens presented by the Believe Network. Always appreciate it, folks. But getting back to you on just the Mets, yes, Williams, you're right. He should be out of the rotation. So this will be very interesting to see how Buck goes about this. I trust Buck no matter his decision-making, but yes, just on paper, we, again, to wrap things up on this discussion, we'd like to see Ty. And before we shift a little bit further into Scherzer and then get into other updates on the Mets and, of course, what they're doing right now with some potential trade rumors, I would like to emphasize, and this is something that hopefully we can do in episodes going further, Joe, is I like to break down some guys that are key players to watch, you know, from both sides. But especially the Astros in this one, I feel like this is the ready on the wall easily. It's the man that torched the Mets up single-handedly that two games set a couple days ago. Arguably the best slugger in baseball, Jordan Alvarez. He casually just hit three bombs in two games against the Mets a couple days ago in Houston. So naturally, I'm going to have my focus on that elite left-handed hitting DH that is Alvarez to see how he does against the Mets. And again, that's just further reasoning for the Mets to have their best starters potentially available based on the ro- ro- uh, rotation configuration there. I mean, I, if I'm being honest, I kind of trust Tywon Walker a little bit more potentially than I do Trevor Williams against Jordan. Not that it will be a drastic difference per se, but again, anything to help the Mets here in this matchup against one of the best sluggers of baseball. And then you, of course, have the likes of Kyle Tucker, who's one of the best and most underrated outfielders in the game, in my opinion. He had a strong series against the Mets in Houston, but away, his numbers are absolutely disgusting. So I want no part of Kyle Tucker on a hot streak against the Mets here in this two-game set, but he's definitely a guy to keep an eye on. And then you can make your pick on the likes of Jose Altuve, Jeremy Pena, if he's in the lineup, because I know he was on the IL when the Mets had that matchup against him. I'm assuming that he's off the IL by now. I could be wrong, however, but the young stud who's now filling in of the void that they lost with Carlos Correa at shortstop. Uh, there's a lot of different weapons that they have, but definitely you got to start and end with Jordan Alvarez. He's a key guy that the Mets need to make sure that they can try to control very similar to the Kyle Schwarbers of the world, the Bryce Harpers. I mean, these are just absolutely massive left-handed hitting power bats for the Mets. If they can contain, that could be a drastic impact in the making or breaking this two-game series. Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, look, when you look at Alvarez, and right now this is where it hurts the Mets to not really have a stud lefty starter, especially one available to go 
in this series. Alvarez has just torched righties all year. His lefty-righty splits are so significant. 19 of his 22 home runs against right-handed pitchers. Oof. His OPS is 1.2 against righties. I mean, it's otherworldly as opposed to a much more manageable 0.78 against uh, against lefties. So the Mets, you know, I mean, batting average off righties, 344. Off lefties, about 260, which is still not bad, but so different. I mean, and, you know, it's going to be tough for the Mets to combat that. We mentioned last episode, you know, and, and really right now it's like he, he's the only guy on this team that I, I don't trust in any situation. You know, Chase and Shreve yes. is, not a, is not a guy that I'm going to trust to come in and get Alvarez out. And so really, you know, as much as the Mets offense struggles against left-handed pitching, the Mets actually – Conversely, don't even have a left-handed answer anywhere. I mean, Peterson, you know, once every fifth day is great for about five innings, but in our pen, Joely Rodriguez, Chase and Shreve, really not high-level lefties. We don't have a lefty ace. You know, we have a really right-handed heavy pitching staff. So it's going to be tough to navigate Alvarez. Now, I will say, and this is all the more reason that I need to see Taiwan Walker, Cookie Carrasco is, is a very home-run prone pitcher. We saw it last year when seemingly every start he gave up a first-inning home run. Gave up, what, three home runs in his brief start against the Astros last week? Taiwan Walker struggled mightily with the long ball a year ago. Gave up 26 home runs last year, most of those in the second half of the season. This year, Tyler, off the top of your head, do you know how many home runs Taiwan Walker's given up so far this year? Off the top of my head. Uh, Let's think. How many starts has he had? Are you aware to this point? He's had 12 starts. 12 starts. Last year, he gave up 26 homers in 29 starts. Okay, I want to say in 12 starts, without looking at the numbers, I haven't checked these once this year regarding the home runs. So this is, I could be completely off here. I'm going to guess that Ty through 12 starts has given up no more than five home runs. You're right. No more than five. In fact, he's given up three home runs so there far you go. this season. And two of them came in his one abysmal start at Philly, that yeah. game that the Mets were down 7 nothing and one eight seven. So Taiwan Walker in 12 starts has only allowed a home run in two starts. He's got one of the lowest home run rates in baseball all year. People rave about Martin Perez of the Texas Rangers. He's given up two home runs all season. Well, I mean, Perez has had about 15 starts because Walker missed a couple, but Walker's not far behind in terms of home run rate allowed. Just three home runs allowed in 12 starts. He's been sensational at keeping the ball in the ballpark. So it's all the more reason, you know, you talk about matchups to watch for. I need Taiwan Walker in this series because if you give up the long ball, Houston, I mean, come on. It doesn't just have to be Alvarez, man. It, it can be Bregman. It can be all five foot five and 160 pounds of Jose Altuve, man. The guy's got some pop. We saw him hit a couple homers against the Yankees this past weekend. So you need a guy against the Astros who's going to keep the ball in the park. You know, Cookie, while he can be a successful pitcher, doesn't keep the ball in the park all that well. You need Taiwan Walker matchup-wise in this series. Absolutely. And hopefully we didn't sound like absolute schmucks for a 10-minute rant on Walker if it is, in fact, going to be Williams by the time you guys are listening or watching this. But, hey. I hope not. Yeah, we we have our personal opinions, and it's justified by the numbers. And with that being said, let's talk about another starter for the Mets, a guy that we emphasized in our first pod thinking, you know what, he's going to return to Miami. Unfortunately, he didn't. However, I'm not griping because Max emphasized it best. He cannot afford a setback, and that's important. You know, just like a normal MLB season, this is a marathon, not a sprint. It's important for someone like Max to not get rushed up back in this rotation. The Mets did not do that. Original expectations, I'd be this pitching this past Sunday in the series finale, which David Pearson, it's hard to argue that Max would have done better than David. Let's be honest here with how well he looked there. Eight Ks, seven innings. I don't think in his first start back, he would have come close to that, to be honest, at least not longevity-wise. I wholeheartedly agree. And now it looks like Max again, his second rehab start tonight at the time that you're watching and listening to this, uh, what they beam some rubble ponies. And then if everything goes well and there's no setbacks or anything of that nature, Max will be back this Sunday. So that's huge. And a couple more things I would like to put you guys on is some health updates with the Mets right now. Colin Holderman, who again, young stud, six foot seven, 240 pounder. That looked great in spring. Has looked great so far for the year with the Mets outside that Padres series. Holderman, who's on the IL, back off the IL, just pitched yesterday. A scoreless inning there with Triple A Syracuse, one, two, three, with a couple strikeouts. You love to see that for the tiring right hander. He's still with the Triple A Syracuse because the Mets only have so many options that they can afford right now because it's max 13 pitchers for the roster. So, and especially when Max comes back, Adonis Medina, I would assume, is going to be the next guy sent down. So, Holderman, we'll see when he's back with the Mets, but I just love that he's healthy and ready to go because he, in my opinion, could be a huge guy, maybe even a potential setup guy for the Mets down the stretch should they have struggles. Not that I wish it, but I really do think he has that much potential being a high-velo guy. 
Solid off-speed stuff. I love Icy from Holderman. Then you also have Tywar McGill. Shout out to Julie, who's a great member on my channel, the entire McGill family. Um, he's got sent to the 60-day IL transfer. It's retroactive. We were aware of that, though. No one was surprised. The earliest that the Mets will get McGill back is late August, early September, given his injury right now. And then you also saw that the Mets did pick up Yes, a Atlanta Brave, a 27-year-old infielder right now, and that is going to be in Mr. Kramer. I want to make sure I don't mess up his last name here, so let me pull, pull up uh, the name here. Kramer Robertson from the Atlanta Braves. He started the year with the Cardinals, was on waivers for them, picked up by the Braves, and now he's in the Mets organization. So that is why Tyler McGill was transferred to the 60-day 60, 60 IL at this juncture, so that way that they have room there. On the uh, there for Kramer. Kramer is known for not just being a solid infielder. Um, has some pop in his bat. Nothing crazy. He's around 250 averages here between uh, two different teams. But he has over 10 stolen bags. So he's got a lot of speed on those bases. We'll see how he does for AAA Syracuse. Looking forward to seeing what potential fit all he has for the Mets. But now let's talk. As long as you're as long as you're good with it, Joe. If you don't have anything to add on about the Astros series and these health updates, and hoping that Jeff McNeil's back, which I would expect him to. I think they're just waiting for him to be back home, and that will be, again, another factor in making or breaking that two-game set. But let's talk about, you know, let's get to some trade discussion. We're getting closer and closer to the trade deadline, Joe, so let's hear it. Yeah, let's do it, man. I mean, look, you put out the great video last week, of course, highlighting the top five position players you felt the Mets should go after. Uh, you know, I'm not going to lie, as much as I love the video, position players are nowhere near a priority for me at the moment because, to me, there are two pitchers on the market that the Mets are already looking at, one of them, they're actually rumored to be in heavy talks with with the Cincinnati Reds. Now, there's still a month to go, a little more than a month. This year's trade deadline, not till August 2nd. But Luis Castillo is one of the hottest names on the market. Of course, he's got uh, he's arbitration eligible next season. So he's not a UFA until 2024. You could get a year and a couple of months control of him. And the Mets are rumored to already be talking to Cincinnati about him. Tyler, I've got to be honest. I don't want him. I want Frankie Montes. I want Frankie Montas from Oakland. I think right now at this point in his career, he's more dominant than Castillo. I think that he'd be a better fit on this team than Castillo. I don't want Luis Castillo. I also think Montas will be cheaper than Castillo. And so, I mean, just to me, you know, all signs are pointing Castillo. I may be in the minority here. I want Frankie Montas. Wow. See, this is this is for a good discuss discussion because for me personally, you know, talking about again the video I came out with, make sure to check it out on my channel for you to know, Ray, folks. Yes, it's early for trade discussions, but I get asked literally every single day of the week since the season began on talking about potential fits for the Mets. And while I agree they don't need offense, it definitely wouldn't hurt to add on to something that's would at that point be a luxury to build more of a juggernaut offense for the Mets. And the main guy that I discussed in that video that's my personal favorite at this juncture is, yes, Josh Bell. Switch hitter, absolutely dominant. He's hitting for contact this year, getting that swing back from what he had a couple years ago with the Pirates, but also is popping his bat as well. And his splits righty and lefty versus those pitchers, basically identical. So that's a big thing for me. There's no gap in what he's providing, can bring that power. And just the thought of having a slugging, you know, left hand hitting more often than not Josh Bell paired with Pete Alonzo, that's hard to beat. So yeah, make sure to check that video out if you haven't. But this week's video that should be coming out around this Thursday at the time of recording this one is going to be yes on starters. I did a quick video on Luis Castillo when I was on my way for vacation over this past weekend. But to expand further, Castillo, I love him. I know that you like Frankie Montas. I love Montas too. I'm fine with either one. You know, this is one of those things where I'm going to be a kid in a candy shop. If the Mets yeah. land either of these guys, I'm coming out smiling. I'm I'm curious to know why exactly you are so against someone like Castillo, other than the side of I really like Montas. Because Montas, one, if you think he's going to cost you anything short of an arm and a leg, I'll be awfully surprised. Yes, did the Mets get a good deal with Chris Bassett this past offseason, 100%. But Bassett's also like four years older than Montas to name one. Montas has another year or so of control in his contract. So that's going to add value for him in the prime of his career right now. And the fact that Frankie Montas was this close to being dealt to teams like the Chicago White Sox, the Minnesota Twins prior to the season beginning and that fell through. That tells me that his value is still high. This guy was literally entering a no-hitter through seven-plus innings just a couple days ago. Like He's been an absolute stud, whereas Castillo – Castillo dealt with an injury earlier this year. He's been dominant really for the most part since then. Cincinnati, it's so hard to gauge what their value is because they're such a Jekyll and Hyde organization. It feels like they want to commit one year, then they're going back into the retool the next. But Castillo, I know he's going to cost you a bit, but I think he has just as much upside, if not maybe even a little bit more than Montas, because in my personal opinion, I think 
Luis Castillo has best changeup among starters in all baseball, not named the likes of Jacob deGrom when he's back and healthy. I mean, Castillo's movement with his changeup is absolutely disgusting. He gets so many swings and misses on that bad boy. And I think that pair with a velo, that can easily touch 99. I mean, Luis Castillo has been a stud. He's going to continue to be a stud. I think he's a bona fide ace for most rotations in baseball, as is. So if you can land him or Montas, I'm absolutely smiling. Again, these guys are going to cost you a lot, but to benefit a team like the Reds, I could even find it a little bit more enticing than maybe the A's with Montas because, yes, I understand that Montas is a team where I know that the Yankees would love him, but the A's don't want to trade with the Yankees right away, so that's why they rather talk with a team like the Mets. It makes sense for that aspect. However, other than having Dom Smith, who could potentially be their fierce spaceman in the future, that Matt Olson type, not to the same degree, but it filled the void for them, years of control his contract, and J.D. Davis potentially a third, losing Matt Chapman this past offseason. The Reds, what do they lack depth in? It's that infield, especially really a star shortstop prospect, unless I'm missing someone, which if I am, let me know in the comments. I'll gladly be proven wrong. The Mets have this top prospect by the name of Ronnie Mauricio, who is blocked by Francisco Lindor for the next decade. And if the Mets are going to do a trade for a bona fide starter, it's hard to imagine that they don't part with the top prospect. So if you're going to part with one, why wouldn't the Reds be completely interested in Ronnie Mauricio, who, again, can be their top shortstop prospect right away and can also be their shortstop of the future for potentially the next decade versus like some other clubs? I mean, it's definitely something away. I see the pros and cons of both here, but for me personally, I might give a slight edge to Luis Castillo, but don't get me wrong, I would be jumping for joy with either starters potentially landing with the Mets by this year's trade deadline. So... Here's what I'll disagree with you on. You, you, you said that Montes is going to cost you an arm and a leg. I think he'll actually be cheaper than Castillo. Yeah, and, I'm and here's the deal. I think that. And, and you mentioned that, you know, because you, you mentioned that he's got another year of club control. Well, technically they both do, but it's arbitration, mm-hmm. right? And so these are two of the cheapest franchises yes. in baseball. Oakland, you can argue, even though Cincinnati's owner is a pompous piece of garbage, yes. you can <laughs> argue that the Oakland Athletics are a cheaper organization than Cincinnati. Arbitration... Doesn't mean he's on club control making, you know, 800K. It means that they're going to have to pay him depending on the season he has. And Montes is having a better season than Luis Castillo, which means next year throughout arbitration, he actually might be more expensive. And you mentioned the Chris Bassett deal and how the Mets got Bassett cheap. Well, that just shows you that the Mets have a really good working relationship with Oakland. A proven working relationship, one that doesn't exist really with Cincinnati. I mean, when's the last time the Mets made a deal with the Cincinnati Reds? Are we talking the Jay Bruce deal? Uh, I mean, probably, six years probably ago. Probably of significance, yeah, I would say. Yeah, which, thank God, by the way, we didn't give up Brandon Nimmo in that deal, like yes, the initial God reports right. said, right? Uh, so I think the Mets have more of a relationship with Oakland. I think Montes right now is more dominant. You know, obviously it's tough because Montes plays in one of the ultimate pitcher ballparks in baseball, and Luis mm-hmm. Castillo, to his detriment, plays in one of the most, uh, in one of the, uh, biggest hitter ballparks yes, in the MLB. Point. But Castillo is a little more home run prone. We've seen that City Field is not the City Field of 2009 in the sense that it's, you know, one of the uh, toughest ballparks in baseball to hit in anymore. It's more middle of the road now. And at the end of the day, I want the guy who's less home run prone, especially as they're gearing up for a playoff run. You know, Montes, I also think, depending on the team's health come the postseason, you know, DeGrom, Scherzer, when they're back, I think Frankie Montes, is maybe a better fit. He very well might be one of our four starters come the playoffs, but if he should move to the bullpen, I think he'd be a more effective reliever in October than Luis Castillo because he throws harder. You know, when I when I look at a guy from the bullpen, I don't really care too much about your changeup. I want a guy who's going to be pumping 100. Montas in that bullpen role will be hitting 99 or 100 if he's called upon for just an inning of work as opposed to seven or eight. And you mentioned the seven hitless innings he threw the other day. Guy got a no decision. The guy's fed up. He's disgusted. He's three. He's one of the best pitchers in the American League. He's three and seven. Now, the A's didn't trade him preseason because every team thinks they have a shot preseason. But the Oakland A's have been one of the biggest disappointments in baseball this year. Even, you know, letting Olsen go, losing Chapman, right? The A's have found ways to win on a budget. This year, they're not even close. And Montes wants out. He's fed up. This guy's pitching his ass off to a three and seven record, goes Eight scoreless, seven hitless innings the other day and gets a freaking no decision. He can't wait to get out of Oakland. I think the Mets can actually get him cheaper than Luis Castillo. 
And that's going to be a really interesting discussion for us to have again as we get closer to the trade deadline because the Mets, just as much as they are in tune right now with Castillo, I assure you they are the same, if not to a definitely similar wavelength than with the teammate and Tyler Maley that they showed interest in during the offseason. And of course, Frankie Montas that they did show a level of interest in earlier this year with along with Maley again when DeGrom first went down with his injury. So there's a lot of options here. These guys, are they going to be cheap? No, by any stretch, but Something that I personally look at as well, which again can favor the likes of maybe Montas, is if you look at Luis Castillo, right? His market is absolutely red hot. And it's going to be. And for the Mets to be able to outbid other teams, they need to make sure that they can outbid other teams with some young capital currently on the roster with years of control where the JD Davis is the Dom Smiths of the world come in, right? But then you look at prospects and can the Mets maybe outmatch a team like the Yankees, who I know the Yankees would very much so like Luis Castillo. I don't know about that one. The Yankees have a deeper prospect pool as do other clubs. So to kind of give credit where credit's due to you, you might be onto something here in regards to value in the sense of, I don't see a world where the Mets, uh, where the Yankees I rather, and the A's make a deal with Montas. Cause I know the Yanks will be more reluctant to do that there in the AL versus with the Mets. When you have say Cincinnati here with Castillo and they're going to just take the best offer available. It's not going to be, uh, it's not going to matter nearly as much about team for them like the Mets and the Reds, as it will be safe for the Yankees and the A's. So to give credit to you, I think that's another factor to keep in mind when evaluating the two. But they're both studs at the end of the day. Like I said, I would love either of these guys. I mean, if the Mets land either of them, that is, by all means, another borderline ace in your rotation. A pair with, hopefully at that point, a healthy Jacob DeGrom. Max Scherzer. Then you have a Castillo Ramontas maybe as your number three. Then you have Chris Bassett and Walker as your four or five. Cookie Crasco, where is he going to be? I mean, that's just that's just what I would call, you know, a luxury. It's a lot of positive issues. It's good problems to have with your rotation. So hopefully we see that transpire. I'm going to be deep diving further again in today in this week's video on trade targets for the Mets uh, starting pitcher-wise and beyond as we get closer to the trade deadline. But definitely good stuff there by you, Joe. Again, I would love either of these two. Um, yeah, but- it, it really, at that point, man, it would just be an embarrassment of riches if this team's yeah. healthy come October. Because then it's like, you know, guys like Peterson and Tyler uh, McGill, who have been great for us, you know, all season, of course, when they've been out there on the field, it, it's like our bullpen is going to be stacked. You know, it, it, they're going to be relievers left off the postseason roster because a guy like McGill, I think, you know, coming in for the eighth inning of the NLCS is going to be pumping 100. You know, I think Peterson is probably would be our most reliable lefty reliever over Shreve and Rodriguez in the in the uh, in the postseason. So it's like this is a team that could very well carry eight, nine starters onto their postseason. And that's what you need. That's the Dodgers way. You know what I mean? Like they don't all need to be aces to begin with, even though it doesn't hurt to have many of them. But it's about how the Astros did with McCullers, man. Brad Peacock, Lance McCullers. These guys, you know, were their four and five starters became their most effective relievers in route to World Series runs. Yes, I, I'm beautifully said. All I know is that when you can have qual- MLB quality pitching depth, that is your route to success come postseason, 100%. So with that being said, Joe, before we wrap things up on the show, let's talk about the update on the Mets and their all-star stats. Because if we look at them right now, I'm still a little upset. I'm not going to lie. Uh, we got one there and that number two for Pete Alonso, but all the others not looking too great at the moment. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little upset too, man, because Jeff McNeil has actually lost ground on Ozzy Albies, who's out for the season. A week ago, how, he was How 9, does that 000. even make sense? You know, I mean, how is Fernando Tatis fifth in, in National League uh, shortstop voting? Same way James McCann is fifth for catching. So Yeah, no right. Game, I mean, exactly. But, but Tatis hasn't played a game all year, and he's fifth yep. in shortstop voting. So, you know, a little disappointed. Look, McNeil's going to make the team. Lindor is currently third. Swanson's lead, deservedly so, I'll say on that one has grown over him. Uh, I think Lindor and McNeil are both going to make the team because uh, they're different cases. If you look at shortstop, you're probably going to have three shortstops make the roster. You're probably going to have Trey Turner be the starter, uh, although maybe Swanson, depending on voting. It's probably going to be those two in the runoff uh, starting in three days. And then I think Lindor with his 56 RBI has to make the team too. How are you going to leave off a guy who's top five in the MLB and runs batted in? Yep. Uh, And then, so I'm looking at three shortstops on the NL roster. At second base, it's different because you're not going to have three second basemen. But if the runoff goes to Jazz Chisholm and Ozzy Albies, Chisholm will win and then and the fan vote and Albies won't make the team. You know, remember the fan the being a final two going into the runoff does not guarantee you a spot on the team. The winner starts, the other one's fate is left in the manager's hands. Albies wasn't having an all-star season before the injury. Now with the uh, the injury, he's not going to make the team. So Chisholm will probably win the fan vote and then McNeil will make it as a backup. What hurts me there is that, in my opinion, Jeff McNeil should be the starter. 
He's fourth in the National League in batting average. He's hitting 327. He's got 33 runs batted in, and he's playing incredible defense no matter where they put him. Now, I know he's listed at second base, and he's played a much improved second base. But also, I can't help but look at his contributions in left field and in right field. Whenever the team calls his name, the guy's got a motor that doesn't stop. He plays incredible, gutsy baseball night in, night out. And uh, to me, you know, Chisholm's got the power numbers, right? 15 homers, 45 stakes. Obviously, a lot more home runs than McNeil. Only 12 more RBI. And he's hitting 250. I'd rather the guy who's fourth in the National League in batting average at 327 than 255 in Chisholm. So I, I don't know. Call me biased. I think Jeff McNeil really deserves to be the starting second baseman in the All-Star game. But either way, I think him and Lindor will both make it as reserves. Alonzo is going to go to the runoff with Goldschmidt. They're one and two pretty far ahead of Freeman and the rest of the bunch. Uh, Alonzo, you know, I mean, all I can say is it's a clean slate after June 30th. So I hope Met fans vote. Um, but it's going to be tough. Alonzo will probably be the backup. So the Mets could have three backup infielders. And then Marte right now is in position. Top six outfielders go to the runoff. Marte is fourth. Mark Kana, surprisingly, is seventh. Nimmo, 10th. You know, I think Nimmo and Marte are both deserving of being all-stars. Kana's been amazing on a little slump lately. I don't know if he's played enough necessarily to be uh, deserving of an all-star selection, but Marte will definitely be going to the runoff. Kana, a late surge here in the next three days could take him there, but I think Nimmo uh, being as, as low as 10th is the most surprising because I think he deserves it. And then on the pitching front, you know, it's entirely left up to the managers. Diaz is a lock, and I really think Taiwan Walker deserves another bid. Let me put it this way. If Ty does, in fact, pitch against the Astros and goes, like, at minimum, six strong, even if it's the same line, similar to what he did just against the Marlins. Six, six and two, six and three. You know, less than 10 hits, three earned. I mean, that just has to further amplify, I think, the likelihood of him being in there. He just needs to continue to roll, be consistent, which has been the story. It's funny how we're talking about Ty as an all-star caliber guy when not long ago I was feeling that, oh, Cookie Carrasco is going to be that guy. And while Cookie, or Chris Bassett. I, I mean, I, I, uh, the yeah. Mets have options, right? They they haven't been as maybe consistent as we would have liked here in the month of June, but that's baseball. These things happen, and that's why you have to look more than just ear ray itself. That's something that I know you might not deep dive as much, but I will definitely reference this in episodes going further because when you look at expected batting average, when you look at SIRA, FIP, expected FIP, all these numbers, what they tell you in a nutshell is what a pitcher is with what he can control and not with the defense behind him, right? So I think when evaluating those numbers, that definitely helps some guys favor in the Mets rotation right now. And Ty, again, he's just been an absolute stud. Hopefully he continues that. But yeah, I agree with you on the pitching. And one further thing I would like to em emphasize with Jeff McNeil is that Jeff, let's not forget, he's having a comeback year right now. Okay. This yeah. is a guy that, again, had a completely down year in 2021 that most people understood that this was a down year he would come back. But there were also people concerned about, you know, the locker romantics with him and Lindor and others. Same thing that led all those rumors throughout the offseason. And also with his kind of golf swing mentality that he's really built over the past couple of years. Because he's a phenomenal golfer. You know, those things have one in hand. But he really kind of is honing on his game. Eric Chavez says, just focus on your swing. Just don't overthink anything. You don't need all the numbers right before you go up to the plate. The way that Zach Scott was trying to make you do as the Mets uh, GM last year. Just focus in on what you know. What has gone you to this point? He has done that. That's why he may very well go down as the NL batting champ on average-wise this year. He's a contact team for uh, Machine. And what I love about McNeil is that not just what is elite defense, which in my opinion is the best defense that we have seen by him by a wide margin, not just at second, but also. He's not even our line. best fielding second baseman because Luis Guillorme is maybe the best defensive Met we've seen since we were going. Exactly. Um, but if you look at not just his great defensive play and prowess, you also have to look at his ability to spread the field. Now, I'm not sure how you feel, Joe, but something that I always appreciate most about hitters, and which was a factor into why I was such a Michael Conforto lover during his time with the Mets, is I love guys that hit for opposite field. I think it's yeah. the most satisfying thing of the world, especially when you do with ease or taking full advantage of the shift, which teams can only do for the re remainder of this year. Then we go back to no shift in 2023 and beyond for the remainder of the new CBA. So McNeil taking advantage of the shift, hitting for opposite field, all these factors have really led me into believing that he deserves it. Slugging, yes, that goes to Jazz. And base running, yes, that goes to Jazz. But in my opinion, the contact hitting, over 20 hits more than Jazz right now, if I'm not mistaken. When you look at the OPS is strong, the WRC+, plus, the OPS+, plus, 
all these factors and that great defense and not just a second base position, but an overall versatility aspect that has to give Jeff an edge. And again, this is down to voting by the fans. Jazz is a flashy, unbelievably fun and really promising player in this league. So don't get me wrong. He deserves to be an all-star, but as we add our bias and watch these players on a more everyday basis, yes, we do have our reasons to say that yes, Jeff McGill deserves to be an all-star and to be the strength second baseman. Yeah, he absolutely does. And if you catch me looking down at my phone right now, I'm trying to pull up his batting average with runners in scoring position. Uh, oh, I don't Jeff have it on the top of my head. But yeah, I mean, all right, here we go. 404. Yes. 404. I'm pretty sure that still leads the entire MLB. Case in point, I mean, I've got nothing left to add this episode. He's hitting 404 <laughs> with runners in scoring position. You know, I, I know Chisholm's got, got the home runs, uh, and he's flashy, and he's fun. And don't get me wrong, I love Jazz Chisholm. Jeff McNeil's the best second baseman in the National League right now. So that, that's that's my closing note. 404 with runners in scoring position. And I think that's a great way to wrap up episode two of the Believe in Queens podcast. So again, thank you all so much for watching and listening. Please don't hesitate again for smashing that like and subscribe on here on YouTube. If you're watching the video format, if you're listening wherever you get your podcast, rate, review, subscribe, all that fun stuff, guys. Like I said, consistent Mets coverage after every Mets series all throughout the season and beyond. A couple episodes from now, we may very well, in fact, have, yes, a former New York Met as our third and consistent co-host, which is going to be such a blast to announce and get into. Trust me, guys, this is just beginning here on the pod. Thanks to the Believe Network. So make sure to review and all that fun stuff. Make sure to check me out on socials, on Twitter, at WordyNYM. And Joe, where can they find you as well? Catch me on Instagram at Joe Serralo and on Twitter and TikTok at the Joe Serralo for Mets content, of course, and my national radio show, Serralo Sports Talk, every Thursday night on SportsMap Radio at 7 Eastern, 4 Pacific. Of course, the, the radio show is posted the next morning as a podcast, so you can also catch Serralo Sports Talk wherever you get your podcasts as well. Love that. Okay, well, thank you all so much, Mets fans, for watching and listening all that great stuff. We'll see you all again after the Astros series, but until then, let's go Mets, baby. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.